Welcome to the 2020 Baby podcast with me, Pamela Douglas, and uh, my friend and colleague down the line from New Zealand, Dr. Nikki Mills, um, to talk with me today to have a good old chat, really, which I've been very much looking forward to, on the functional anatomy of sucking and swallowing in um, breastfed babies. So, Nikki, could I talk with you next about your paper on the um, histology of the lingual frenulum? So what was new here, would you say? Uh, so for me, I guess the main thing, rather than being new, was proving that the dissections I had done were not... Um, that I'd manipulated the tissue in some way to look um, not yeah. as, as it was. That I, um, so it was really um, for me proving that what I'd seen in the dissections was consistent and was real. Um, the other thing I, I guess I was trying to look at is what variability there was regarding those tissues. And I am not a histopathologist, um, so I, I think what I was looking at with a limited budget, um, you know, I, I um, spent an extraordinary amount of money. I was going to say, so, um, so, so um, no, no big grant here, Nikki. To um... no, no, I didn't get any any grant, and um, I did um, almost all of the histology work myself, which was um, very laborious. You're and, amazing, um, really. Love, this work is love, just amazing. But um, it really was using histology to look at structure, um, so histotopography, really, rather than you know, what we traditionally think of as histology, looking at cells and cellular structure and things. So really, it just proved that um, the concept of the frenulum not being a discrete midline structure and that the fascial layer was present in all individuals um, and extended across the floor of mouth. So really, it was um, confirming histologically that that structure um, was indeed real and present um, and confirming the, no extension of the floor of mouth fibres yes, into the septum and, of the tongue. Into the, so, yeah, so so the, the genioglossus was suspended from that fascia and so that's how the genioglossus muscles can be drawn up into the frenulum when the, the tongue's, you know, elevates and places are under tension. But um, certainly it was a discrete layer and it varied hugely um, between individuals um, so it could be delicate and lacy in some and really thick and um, almost chunky in other individuals so there is no um, evidence to support that there's a discrete anomaly with ankyloglossia um, I, I think that we all vary, um, even across the floor of mouth, the thickness of the floor of mouth fascia varied, um, and the the content of, um, so I looked a little bit at, at tissue typing, so look at collagen typing and the presence of elastin, and 
those um, tissue types varied and those tissue types have different properties of elasticity. So I think it just showed that we are all different and in, in how um, that fascial layer behaves from a mechanical point of view is not going to be the same in all individuals. And so we're talking, we, sorry to jump yeah. in, but I was just going to say, we're really talking again about the incredible variability of normal um, human Yes, and thinking of it as a spectrum tissue. rather than that, because, um, you know, some very um, well um, followed, I was going to say well respected, but well followed um, individuals who are um, supposed experts on lingual frenulums have talked about abnormal collagen and abnormal um, tissues. And I believe that my research has disproven that as a concept, that I don't believe that there's abnormal tissues or collagen in any in anybody. I think that we all vary with proportion, so how stretchy you know, that fascial layer is, because, you know, the, I think the concept of the frenulum is that it's not elastic, but I think in some individuals, you know, you can see sheets of elastin yeah. um, in their fascial layers, like, impressively, um, you know, and the properties of elastin are um, hugely distensible. So, and type 3 collagen, is around blood vessels and things that need to expand and, and change shape and volume. So I think the fact that in some individuals those tissue types are really um, highly represented suggests that there is, you know, at least in some individuals, there is some distensibility of those um, tissues. So I, I think, again, it's really about normalising stuff and saying, well, you know, we're all you know, on a spectrum. Normalising variability. Yeah, there's no one that has a discrete anomaly that, you know, we're diagnosing something that's present in somebody that's not present in everybody else. Um, And I think it's important to to conceptualise that. Yes, thanks. So um, this particular um, histology study also showed that... The tongue is uh, supported, stabilised by the floor of mouth fascia and that then enables tongue mobility. But it's not suspended from or supported by the mylohyoid muscles, right? Yeah, so uh, it's, a really, it's a really funny thing because um, I, certainly that was what I was taught in, as an ear, nose and throat surgeon with the anatomy is that the floor of mouth um, and the contents of the floor of mouth and the tongue are kind of suspended or supported um, by mylohyoid and kind of um, the concept of that is kind of a bit like a trampoline, I guess, that when the muscle fibres contract, they kind of tighten and draw up um, underneath, uh, you know, from the from the underneath the floor of mouth space. Um, but the interesting thing is that you know, in cancer surgery, sometimes mylohyoid has to be removed and the tongue doesn't fall down or fall out of the mouth. Hmm. And in fact, from a functional point of view, there's not really any change. Um, so I think already 
that as a concept that kind of didn't really make a lot of sense. But um, when I did my research, I did quite a lot of my research on what's called fresh frozen cadavers, which is most people's experience of cadaveric anatomy work is using embalmed cadavers, which is the tissues become quite firm and stiff. Um, but for the purposes of my research, I actually needed tissues that were soft and pliable for both dissection, but also kind of understanding passive movement. So I was able to move the tongues maximally in all directions and kind of look at what was limiting the range of mobility in any given vector of movement with the tongue. And so the tongue, if we move it kind of maximally, and obviously a lot of the work I'd done, the, the mandible and tongue had been removed from, from the body. So I was able to have, you know, full access to the whole um the whole tongue and if we conceptualize the floor of mouth fascia as inserting around the inner surface of the mandible as an arc and then that it uh, spans across the floor of mouth and merges with the connective tissue on the tongue and then in any given movement that fascial layer will come under tension you know whether it's on the lateral sides of the tongue or in the region of the frenulum anteriorly and when the tongue reaches a certain point, um, that fascia will, will limit the tongue from moving further. So we cannot swallow our tongue. You know, we can mm. lift the tip of our tongue back, but actually it gets to the point where that fascia stops it from moving further, and that's in every, every direction. And it's the, the so, basic stabilising function of any sort of fascial tissue in the yeah, so, human body. I think um, it kind of makes sense to me, and I guess this is just something that I've pondered on and tried to, I guess, propose what my thoughts were based on the observations that I had as part of doing all of that research, was that I think it makes sense to me that the tongue is suspended and supported by the fascia and that it's a passive energy um, mechanism. So... Um, there is no muscle movement and, you know, energy involved in supporting the tongue to sus be suspended in, in the arc of the mandible. But then its role, which I think is, you know, that balance between the tongue moving but not moving too much. So the fascia is suspending and supporting the tongue but also allowing mobility but limiting the, the maximal extent of that mobility so I think it has a role in both stability and support as well as movement and that it's um, obviously, you know, in the most extreme uh, forms of ankyloglossia where the tip of the tongue is actually fused onto the mandible, you can see how that fascial layer is limiting mobility. <laughs> um you know, and in yeah. the extremes, it's it's more obvious. But I think if we if we conceptualise it as actually as something being really important and stabilising um, the tongue, and it has enough laxity usually to allow you know a full range of functional movement. And thinking of the tongue, 
needing to move in different ways for different tasks. So how the tongue needs to move for breastfeeding is different than how it needs to move for bottle feeding. And it's different for how it needs to move for speaking and for chewing and for clearing debris from our teeth. And all of those things create different movement patterns and, and different requirements. And you know, how a lingual frenula may limit movement is going to impact on some of those activities, but not others. And, um, you know, so I think understanding task-specific mobility is really important when you're thinking about the lingual frenulum and whether it has an impact um, on on mobility. Mm. Well, that, I guess, um, segues nicely really into the next study that you did that that I'd like to discuss, which was a feasibility study of real-time MRI to capture swallow in a breastfeeding baby. So could you tell me how you set that study up, what the numbers were? And and I think there's some very important findings here, actually, things that very much interest me. Certainly a a first um, internationally. (laughs) Yeah, so um, so if we think about this as um, viewing mainly the swallowing component of breastfeeding, but certainly looking a little bit holistically at sucking and swallowing, um, that when the the interesting thing around sucking is that, as um, you well know. Um, Donna Geddes and the team over um, in Western Australia mm. and also David Elad and, and the team at Columbia University used ultrasound um, to look at intraoral um, movement of the tongue and, and nipple by using an ultrasound um, in the submental region, so underneath the tongue and in a mid-sagittal plane, so in the midline. So how many studies, um, can I ask, can I break in there, has uh, Elad's team actually done? Um, interestingly, he, um, as far as I know, they only published one. Yeah, yeah. But they did, he did do um, some presentations that included some work that they did following on from that, which was on ankyloglossia and looking at pre and post phrenotomy and looking at tongue um, biomechanics. Um, but it's not been peer-reviewed and published, right? No, no. but I, um, I had watched his presentations and um, obviously they were small numbers in looking at... Um, individual movement patterns before and after um, that had very significant changes in movement patterns, which was really interesting. We we could talk about that for an hour. Well, and I, I must admit I'm, um, I'm interested to, to talk about um, it. Maybe firstly we'll deal with your real-time MRI. But, but yes, I mean, the yes, reason so why it's also important so what I was trying to say is that yeah. um, ultrasound uh, has proven very effective um, because of the window through the soft tissues of the, the floor of mouth that they can pass um, 
the the probe and the, the image through that tissues. But swallowing um, for breastfeeding is much harder to observe because um, you have the hyoid, which creates a big shadow for using ultrasound. Um, and also it becomes very three-dimensional. So with the sucking, they were looking very much in a two-dimensional plane in the midline. But with swallowing the, the liquid bolus, um, we know we, we now know from my work that um, it passes, you know, into the piriform fossa or sinus, which is a, a, the lateral channel around the the airway. And ultrasound. So bilateral, not, bilateral channels. It's not channels. well suited for, for following a, a three-dimensional kind of view. And the other way that traditionally is looked at swallowing is using videophoroscopy swallow studies or what barium swallows. And um, they rely on giving a radio-opaque contrast to an infant or, or a patient and watching it um, creating a, a video as they swallow. So a couple of things about that. One is it's radiation. So they really limit the number of swallows they observe because of exposing um, radiation. But the other thing is that breast milk is not radio-opaque. So they cannot watch breast milk um, being swallowed because they can't see it um, on X-ray. So although there are um, a couple of, two, there are two studies in fact that have um, made observations of breastfeeding for technical reasons i don't believe that either of them really have given us useful information about breastfeeding because they've needed to give um, supplementary liquid so that they can see it and they've needed to put them in quite abnormal breastfeeding positions so that they can um, you know be captured in the in the radiology suite and so i think Breastfeeding swallowing is really hard to look at. And so what's happened um, historically is that most assumption, most most information that we have about breastfeeding swallowing is assumptions based on watching bottle feeding swallowing. Um, and I think we have enough reason to understand that breastfeeding and bottle feeding have huge differences biomechanically um, and physiologically. And I was really just trying to see if um, using MRI, we were able to capture, um, you know, the, the functional anatomy and the events that were occurring during breastfeeding. So um, we, we did get some pretty cool pictures. Um, <laughs> it was... It was technically really hard to do. Yeah. So there one to three of minutes of, of, of videos, I think they were of a duration for nine of the bubbies. There were 12 in the study, right, under, yeah, under five so months of age and nine you could get videos from of a yeah. duration, one to three minutes. Yeah, so um, there were lots of technical um, issues with capturing and, and a lot of that was around getting alignment um, to be in the in the midline because really we wanted to try and capture through the midline of the infant so that we had the nipple and against the hard palate and the tongue um, and 
it was hard to do because the baby would move. But the, so the ma- mother and infant both went into the MRI scanner, which for anyone who's had an MRI scanner, I'm sure you yeah, can very appreciate brave. how um, challenging that was. And they were both side-lying. So all of the breastfeeding was captured with the infant and mother both side-lying facing each other. Yeah. Um, and all of them practiced and were comfortable and happy to do, uh, you know, we talked about this with all of them before they did it so that they were practicing that position at home and they were all happy to the mother and the baby to feed in that position for the scan. Um, the From a software point of view, we were using um, software programs that were designed for ca- capturing dynamic imaging. So we weren't doing static pictures obviously we were trying to capture movement and you sacrifice some clarity by capturing um, movement Um, but one of the biggest things was is you had to find the baby so you had to try and find and align three-dimensionally that mid-sagittal plane yeah yeah um, it was it was hard because you would start and what the program we had was actually you could move the console of the MRI during active capture, um, but it was challenging. And I think you know, and obviously some of the babies, the noise was just a bit too disturbing when we were you know that when the MRI yeah. runs, it's quite noisy. And but um, look, I think we captured some pretty magic images, and I don't know that we really. Um, identified anything that we didn't know already but certainly it's the first time we've been able to look at sucking and swallowing and breathing and palate movement and everything simultaneously Um, you know and you can see even the milk jetting into the stomach of the baby yeah yeah it's amazing work I think you know because an ultrasound occurs in two dimensions and and so we're talking about LAD's team who've got the one published study but of course the human lactation research group with Donna Geddes and Sharon Perella and and team have done multiple studies of breastfeeding babies with ultrasound and then then the authors need to interpret the data and and in fact I could see that you know, we had the problem of two-dimensional data and then how do you make sense of that in 3D? How do you make sense of that clinically? And uh, it was because of that whole question that I reached out actually and Donna and Sharon um, invited me into their lab in Perth and and I've um, very much enjoyed my collaborations with with the Human Lactation Research Group and their use of ultrasound in breastfeeding babies and out of that developed up the Gestalt model because that's all we can really do when we're interpreting ultrasound data is is create a model. So the Gestalt is, is, is a 3D model built out of 2D data. So here you, ha- you are with, with an MRI having a look in real time in you know 3d and and so I think the findings you know are, are really really interesting and uh, I suppose to my mind shall I I'll speak to this and then you you could um, take over since you know this work so incredibly well but I, f- I think in the end you did conclude that that ultrasound, at this time anyway, remains the superior modality for visualisation of what's I think just, happening with the tongue just and breastfeeding. Just to clarify that, yep. I think 
Ultrasound is good for oral visualisation, so purely for sucking. I think for for swallowing, ultrasound is very poor. And I think it doesn't really... um, isn't at this point in time able to capture anything useful for swallowing. Yeah. Um, but and and I think um, both uh, obviously sucking's very important. Um, and the 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 work, um, the information that's able to be acquired with the combination of ultrasound and the intraoral pressure, which um, the Perth group have been. Um, combining yeah yeah I think is, is really important but from a swallowing perspective um ultrasound is not helpful I think yeah yeah but you were also so you were looking primarily at the swallow but in order to understand the swallow when you're doing the MRI you made some observations that that yes. I think were really interesting like yeah you know there's no air for instance in the oral cavity during sucking or indeed during the swallowing, right? Yeah. That, that, so we could, we okay, could speak to that if, first. Yep. Yeah, we could see if the baby broke the vacuum, you know, because then you could see the nipple outlined with air around it within the mouth of the baby. And that happened occasionally rather than regularly and only in some infants. So generally, which is again, just supportive of the work that Donna and her group have done that show the sustained baseline vacuum um, and the, you know, the, the, to create that, they have to, the baby has to have no air in their mouth to create that vacuum. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And then you um, confirmed what had been a kind of guessed at in the interpretations of, of the 2D ultrasound, that the tongue tip during successful breastfeeding because all these bubs had no breastfeeding problems you know the mum and babe pair didn't have breastfeeding problems but the tongue tip rested on the lower gum during breastfeeding and it didn't protrude necessarily onto or beyond the lower lip right correct yep so i think I think that was an interesting thing to have and, and confirmed the, as well. In the upper lip, I'm sure you're going to get. And to then, that. yeah, you go, go, you go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. I'm warming I, up to it. I put that in the paper for you, Pamela. Oh, thank you, darling. <laughs> <laughs> well, you better speak to it now. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I. It was just a curious curiosity, really, given. Um, you know how I've, I've seen so many women come to clinic and they're so obsessed about the position of their infant's lips that they will pull the baby away from their baby so they can see their baby's lips and they'll use their fingers to try and flip out or avert their baby's upper lip or you that's know, it and often instructed to do it and, yeah. and, and, and people talking about the special K lips and um and actually, just by even looking at what their baby's lips are doing, they're pulling the baby away from them and pulling, you know, breast tissue out exactly, of the baby. Exactly, exactly. By doing that, and um, I must say it's become my mantra that um, 
I say if you can see your baby's lips, you're definitely not latched correctly. <laughs> That's right. That's. I wonder where you got that from, Nikki. <laughs> I, um, I, um, so you want a, a decent space plant, and if you can see the lips, then you're not holding the baby in closely enough. <laughs> That's it. That's it. So, um, and given that uh, if they are holding the baby like that, you can't see the lips and what they're doing, I just thought it was curious to look at actually what was happening with the lips and uh in the majority of the babies the, the upper lip wasn't everted and those mums were all feeding comfortably and normally so um although it's very small numbers I don't believe that anyone's ever reported specifically um with no, normal breastfeeding the lip position and that's because if, if you're feeding properly you can't see them so you, you're making assumptions but no one's actually ever been able to report that yeah that's it so I think that's that's another important part of of this study so ultrasound you concluded remains the superior modality for visualization of of the dorsal tongue during breastfeeding Um, but the swallow for all its technical challenges has been best visualized really for the first time with your real-time MRI right well I think I think actually probably um, that segues into my last paper, which um, <laughs> well, uh, I, I think the the best way of looking is actually looking with a camera, um, and I think we've learnt more from the the breastfeeding fees, which is the endoscopic evaluation of swallowing um, regarding the pharyngeal phase of swallowing um, in infants than we have with any other modality for viewing or instrumental evaluation of swallowing. Mm. Well, let's talk about that final study now and then go back for a whole conversation around the biomechanics of suck. Is that all right? Yeah. So if you could tell us about your study with these breastfeeding babies with laryngomalacia, it was 23 bubs and a retrospective audit Am I right through well, your records? Well, it was a, it was a, um, I guess, prospectively collected uh, observational study. So it okay. was, um, uh, it, and it, as you know, my PhD was really using this component of the the research was using flexible endoscopy um, to observe the dynamic anatomy of the airway and of the swallowing and of airway protection, so that's whether babies are aspirating or not when they're swallowing um, during breastfeeding. And for those of you who aren't familiar with the, the terminology I'm using, we have a very thin, flexible endoscopic camera, which is about the size of a nasogastric tube from a diameter point of view. It's 1.9 millimetres in diameter. And we pass it through the infant's nose. Um, And we use this routinely to look at the airway um, when infants have noisy breathing or or difficulties with breathing or with voice. Um, And we can look dynamically at the palate movement, we can look at tongue base, at um, epiglottis and at vocal cord movement. And we can also observe swallowing. 
So it's possible to either um, with breastfeeding or bottle feeding to actually watch um, with the endoscope sitting in the pharynx while the baby swallows. So um, from a breastfeeding point of view, as you can imagine, um, there are some technical challenges with that. And I would say most ENT surgeons don't have the, the patience um, or time to do breastfeeding fees, but certainly I was really wanting to understand what was happening <laughs> um, yeah. with, with babies. And for me, if they were having airway problems and, and almost all of them would also have feeding problems, um, it was really trying to understand how we could help support these babies. So over, I guess it's been a period of um, close to 10 years that I've been doing this and over, I guess, the last five years, you know, trying to collate all of the, the data of all the babies that I've seen over that period of time, which includes um, babies with a really wide range of congenital anomalies, including um, cleft palates and um, craniofacial anomalies and um, also acquired conditions such as vocal cord um, pauses after cardiac or gastroenterology surgery. Um, but I guess the biggest group was infants with laryngomalacia and um, given that a lot of, I, I think babies with laryngomalacia have a lot of problems with um, breastfeeding for lots of reasons. So, um, And could I jump in there too, Nikki, because that would be on a spectrum, wouldn't it? I know um, clinically I'll often see little ones who have a touch of laryngomalacia, but there's no reason for me to be referring them on to you, to an ENT um, surgeon um, or indeed a, a paediatric respiratory physician. But, but along that spectrum, there comes a point where so, it's important so to have I evaluation. I guess I would say um, it's a little bit of a pet. Um, uh, <laughs> Go for it. Um, <laughs> so so um, if an infant has noisy breathing, um, I would call it, uh, you know, neonatal strider or um, congenital strider that is consistent with laryngomalacia from a history and from a sound and, and symptom point of view. But I consider laryngomalacia to be an endoscopic diagnosis. So um, I think a lot of the, and, and I think um, you and a lot of GPs and paediatricians would, would label a baby as having laryngomal mild laryngomalacia, which is very likely um, true in most of the cases. But... Um, <laughs> I think um, if a child has mild strider and it's not affecting their feeding significantly, they're growing well and not having significant obstructive symptoms, I think it's completely appropriate to manage them conservatively with the assumption that it is laryngomalacia and manage it accordingly um, and referring them on for evaluation and diagnosis if the symptoms are more severe or impacting in their their feeding or growth and development or having more significant obstructive symptoms. But um, I think the, the paper that I've pub published, which has been accepted and hopefully I'm hoping will be out very, very soon, um, relates specifically to that group of 
um, Laringo Malaysia infants because I think it is something that is seen commonly and I think it's very underestimated um, how significant the impact um, is on breastfeeding specifically. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think the solution for a lot of those babies is either the mother expressing and giving EBM via a bottle or bottle feeding and with formula and giving up breastfeeding or feeding at the breast. Um, As in a common solution that's offered to those women, you mean? So, I, you know, I would say... Uh, even the even even worse than being a common solution, I think it's often considered the only solution mm. that um, they're not. There is nothing offered to these mothers that supports ongoing breastfeeding or establishing breastfeeding, and that nobody, you know, and certainly in my ENT training and my experience within the hospital system is that, you know, the babies cough and choke a lot. Um, they get stressed. They come off, on and off and on and off. Um, they have difficulty with their breathing. They have difficulty coordinating their sucking, swallowing and breathing. Um, and they start to become really stressed about feeding, that they um, will often, um, you know, in extreme um, versions will start breast refusal because mm. they See, you know the the idea, and you know the way I describe it, which might sound a bit dramatic, but when we watch these babies um, breastfeeding and what apparently is a, a common um, suggested breastfeeding position, which is in a more of a cradle hold supine position, the babies are drowning. They they mm. are literally. I watch the breast milk endoscopically. These babies are drowning, and so the you know when when you try and conceptualise why these babies are getting stressed about breastfeeding, is because every time you know it's feeding time, they think, oh my god, you know how am I going to survive this? Um, and yeah. I think there are some babies that are very, from a personality point of view, are very laid back and seem to kind of take it all on board. They'll cough and choke, but they'll happily go back again. But there are other babies you know, who really um, become incredibly stressed by that experience and um, would rather starve than feed. If that's, well, of you know, course, I mean, it's, it's that whole concept of a condition dialing up with, with yes, breastfeeding. Absolutely. And, you know, we know that that can develop just because the little one has ongoing experiences of oh, not being able to get quite comfortable or fit and hold problems or some experiences of, um, some inadvertent coercion because, you know, the mum's sort of really worried about weight gain and getting milk in. So, you know, if, if those I, situations think, can cause it, then a laryngomalacia, you know, a real yeah. um, frightening I, I experience that, for the baby. Yeah. I, I think as a, as a subgroup of infants, I think they, they often have significant problems with breastfeeding and... Um, you know, I, my experience in the hospital setting is when these infants come to be diagnosed, you know, they're referred because of their feeding, breathing difficulties. Um, often they've already given up breastfeeding or they're certainly struggling or they're expressing and giving. So with a bottle you can pace um, and you can sit a baby really upright and um, do lots of things, you know, that, um, you know, are not 
not straightforward um, to do breastfeeding. So the the paper that I've published is specifically, although I did look at a really broad and diverse range of infants over the period that I was, I guess, studying and trying to understand the breastfeeding swallow, I have presented, and I think it's just because it's uh, a, a cleaner study from a data point of view, mm. um, presenting observations of this um, group. And they had a, a reasonably wide range of severity of laryngomalacia and obviously all of them bad enough to need to, you know, be referred um, for diagnosis. But um, I think, uh, shall I go yeah, on to talk Yeah, here? if you could talk about what, what you found actually. Obviously, um, reading the paper <laughs> will give you more detail, but I guess the synopsis is um, that what I did with these infants was um, we observed their breastfeeding with them in the position that the mother was comfortable and would normally breastfeed them in, which interestingly um, <laughs> was in a, a cradle hold with the infant, mainly supine, maybe a little bit. Um, side lying but um, you know predominantly supine position um, and what we observed is that in this position the, the infant's laryngomalacia was at its worst because the tongue base was pushed more posteriorly in that position and the epiglottis was more retroflexed so they had more strider and more obstructive symptoms from a breathing point of view um, when the baby paused to have a, a breathing break from sucking, the milk would continue to flow and that milk um, was often causing penetration, which is overflow into the, the laryngeal inlet or the space above the vocal cords or was causing aspiration. So it was actually flowing between the vocal cords. So the infant would stop to have a breathing break because of, uh, the strider and airway obstruction, the drive to need to stop and break, uh, have a break to breathe, was more um, more intense. And so, when the flow, rather than triggering more swallowing to to cope with the milk that was flowing when they were sucking. Um, they would aspirate or choke or unlatch so that they could breathe without the milk flowing into their pharynx. So with all of the babies, we repositioned them and essentially what we did was tilt the babies inwards towards the mother and um, the mother leaned back a little bit. And there were lots of variations of that. Um, but essentially, um, if you imagine... Where the infant was looking with their eyes, their eyes were looking down more towards the floor than up towards the ceiling, if that makes sense. So they were in a semi-prone position rather than a semi-supine position. Um, and that improved all of those parameters. So the tongue base came forward. Um, the milk didn't flow into the pharynx when the baby wasn't sucking. They had less obstruction. They coped essentially better so um, all of the babies um, had respiratory and swallowing parameters that improved um, with that change in position. Mm, it's, it's so interesting isn't it and of course I've been particularly interested in your findings because 
in the gestalt approach once we're working with breastfeeding problems, addressing breastfeeding problems and trying to set up optimal biomechanics, that semi-prone position with the woman reclined at, say, 45 degrees in a deck chair position, the little one chest and tummy flat in against her and then, of course, the symmetrical face, breast berry and so forth, that I've found over all these years really does set up the biomechanics for most women and their babies most of the time and actually you've demonstrated with the fees that that it optimizes airway protection for these little ones with a laryngomalacia and by looking at the mechanics of that it would certainly seem that you know so the tongue base is is moving more anteriorly right because of the effects of gravity and yes um, and and i think um, you know, the interesting thing about this is, you know, lactation consultants probably for more than a century have known, you know, anyone, any of them worth their salt, I think, Pamela, <laughs> um, that, that um, trying that positioning um, was worth doing to, to see if that improved. But I think this is the first time that we've actually observed and described what happens with that change of position so what what does putting the baby in that position do from a dynamic perspective with the swallow and the fluid dynamics and the the airway dynamics and I think for me I mean I I guess I'm the 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 swallowing geek that I, I'm really excited about being able to see and understand what we're changing and how we're changing it. And then from that, you know, when we have individuals with more unusual or specific problems, we can work out what we can do and how we can change things to do that. But I think from the point of view of, you know, the gestalt um, principles, I think it just helps us understand exactly why that works so well and what we're changing by favouring that position. See, I, I would say clinically in recent times anyway, because of the concern that the baby's unsettled behaviour related to air swallowing, many families with any hint of breastfeeding difficulty are told to try to keep the baby more upright. You know, certainly if there's any hint of unsettled behaviour with the breast, um, it may be interpreted as due to wind, air swallowing and, you know, try feeding the baby in a more um, vertical position, the woman sitting upright and trying to, to get the baby more vertical, which, you know, really um, doesn't help protect the airway according to what you're finding, what you found in this study. I, I think, um, yeah, I, th I think it's a little bit more complicated than that in that um, I think um, I'm trying to I'm trying to think how to explain no, it in a simple um, um, way I, interested I to think hear what you say. There's, a, there's a lot of and I remember the first time I came to observe your um, clinical practice um, when I visited and I, I talked to you about one of the challenges that I didn't have any solutions for were particularly around maternal body habitus and 
um, generous breast mothers um, and kind of how to get that fit and hold, you know, with variables of maternal anatomy as well. And I, um, I think I appreciate that there's not necessarily the right one answer for everybody. And I and I appreciate that. I think that, and I agree that the principles of Gestalt um, breastfeeding is a really great with lots of good uh, evidence behind why it is really good um, but I think there's always some individuals where variable variations of that where you on an individual basis will tweak things to fit well for that baby and that mother and I think um, I I certainly in, in that study didn't get them all sitting upright in a what I think is considered more of a laid-back positioning when the baby's more sitting and leaning in um, they were varied between, you know, completely horizontal and tilted in with the mother leaning back to when some babies were more upright and sitting. So it was more relating to um, the infant leaning in and being in a slightly prone position with lots of variations of that mm. specific positioning, if mm. that makes sense. Yeah, and I think in some correspondence we had last year around it, a baby with laryngomalacia who, who'd been whose mum had been advised to start pumping and, and bottle feeding. We were exploring this, and you because I pulled out the email actually, and you were saying that um, you'll have perhaps the bubby's more diagonal across her body, but still semi reclined, you know, little one's chest and tongue yeah, against I, her. I mean, certainly, the the principles that I I talk about in, in my clinical practice to the parents because I think it helps them. It's very simple. As I talk about where the baby would be looking if they're looking straight ahead and if they're looking towards the ceiling, then they're more, more supine. And if they're looking, that their eyes would be looking more towards the floor, then they're more prone. Um, and I think the baby's eyes need to be looking more towards the floor than the ceiling for for getting um, optimizing their airway if they have any compromise. Mm. Yeah, because I was going to say, it, really, it's about the woman experimenting, isn't it? And I guess yes, that's the concept absolutely. of micro movements too. Yes, um, and absolutely. I guess if if you know the reason why with the very little ones. Um, I found for most women, most of the time, that rib cage wrap really works to optimise biomechanics. Um, is is I think, you know, our lovely post birth tummies can then impact if we're looking at a more diagonal position. It can impact even when the woman's semi reclined on the little one's capacity to get a little bit of cervical extension. But for most women, most of the time, with with the newborns you know, into the early weeks, that, that rib cage wrap really optimises what's happening biomechanically with the suck. But, of course, as that little one gets longer and that'll depend on the baby's length, really, you know, it has to be they'll be pushing off the, the back of the chair if you continue that. So yes, naturally absolutely. the little one starts to move to more horizontal yeah. 
I, I beg your pardon, yeah. starting more diagonal across the, the woman's yeah. body. So I, I think there are quite a few factors um, that I, I suspect, I think, that you may agree with, um, that obviously we've got the, the biomechanics of the fluid. So if they're lying more in a cradle hold, um, supine, uh, supine, the milk, or when the with the milk ejection reflex, or or the milk that continues to flow when the baby's not sucking, they're having to deal with milk flow when they're stopping to breathe and have a, a break. So I think that's something that we change immediately if we put them semi-prone. Yeah, and obviously bringing the tongue base forward and improving the airway. But I think um, the other thing is. Um, and again, it relates a little bit to, you know, appreciating that the, the baby is an individual, is that if they are resting on the mother's arms and their full body weight is on their mother's arms or on a breastfeeding pillow, that if they are having milk flow they can't cope with, the baby is kind of wedged, wedged there and is unable to have any self-control over getting out of that position to where they feel safer and can breathe um, if they needed to. Whereas if they are semi-prone, um, you know, and leaning into their mum, most of their body weight is being held on the mum with gravity. And actually very early on, they have enough head neck strength to be able to move their head themselves. Exactly. And control they need to unlatch. Exactly. From a, from a control point of view and the baby feeling like they have control over that I think is is really important in infant stress yeah. <laughs> that they have some control whereas exactly. if you've got your hand behind the baby's head and you've wedged them up when you think the right time is <laughs> um, to latch them and you're holding them there where they are wedged and can't um, have any control I think that's a, a really um, big factor that I've observed that babies seem less stressed if they have some control in that semi-prone position. They have much more control um, about latching and unlatching and, and breathing and, and having control over what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for listening. It's been great to have your company. And remember to check out the non-profit website possumsonline.com for lots of free resources and programs and the publications that form the evidence base to neuroprotective developmental care or the possums programs as together we grow joy in early life i hope you tune in again soon bye for now